load up and bring your friends. It's fun to lose and to pretend. She's overboard. She's self-assured. Oh no, I know a dirty word. Hello, 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 how low? Welcome to Your Creativity, the show that keeps going, and we have one listener, my mom. (laughs) Shout out to my mom. But, you know, I don't even know if she really tunes in, so we maybe should subscribe her. Like, maybe we can, like, figure out how to subscribe my mom. Any other family we can pay to watch? Yeah, I have a big family. There's, like, 11 kids, so, I mean, there's, there's a big family. We need at least one. Like one to get on board. Yeah. Well, my mom, but yeah, she yeah. Don't, it won't be like volunteer. <laughs> yeah. Like, like she, she's just going to be signed up. It's kind of like the Find Your Friend app. My mom's, I can know where she is, but I'm not sure that she signed up for that. <laughs> or so that like, she wants to hang out. Yeah, she yeah. may not want me to know where I, where like she is. Oh, but, this is great. but tonight we're here, or today we're here with Michael McHenry from the McHenry Group. Can, can I just say something real quick no, before we start? No, maybe. For, oh, Dylan. For it's a big God. deal, Steve. It's my anniversary. Today's out. your anniversary. Yes, oh. twenty years. Why are you? Why, why, what are, are you here? here? She's at work. <laughs> Twenty-year anniversary. It's like, well, we're gonna end it. <laughs> yeah, this, you know what? This podcast just—it was, it was good. Dylan so, was not supposed to be here. It's way hotter than the twentieth anniversary dinner. <laughs> it's totally. Well, okay. Well, actually, I mean, that's one thing. You talk, talking spice and stuff. Can we incorporate that now? Spice your love. Yeah. And hot chicken, dirty, dirty bird. bird. Yeah. I'm a dirty, dirty bird. <laughs> dirty bird on the 20th anniversary. There we go. Okay. Okay. So for people that don't know, Michael runs the McHenry Group, and basically you are like a genius behind a zillion different restaurants, and you've been working restaurants since you were a kid. It feels that way. I mean, I still feel like a kid today, but most of it, I got in the business at you're like late 20s, like. 20 19 or 20 so about and now 10 I'm in years late ago? 30s yeah i mean i i feel like at 39 i feel better than i did at 30 uh but i'm most definitely 39 i got started at 19 or 20 somewhere in that range yeah so for people that want to research you have had a ton of success <laughs> but you didn't start out like in the food industry you started out in a bowling alley yeah. you started like um that kind of stuff and then it turned into hey i'm gonna do this cafe rio type stuff i could use a hand and then that's how you got involved in in burritos yeah totally crazy yeah i (laughs) i actually only knew food from like the consumer side i was like but i'm just gonna say it the way it is i was like that chubby like fat kid who ate french fries and chicken tenders and bowl i was the kid with like fry sauce fry sauce stains on the front of my shirt and that's that was really How I got started around business was competitive bowling got me a shot, and then next thing you know, it created a bit of a network and got some attention, and then all of a sudden, I found myself in the food business, and I'm putting everything in a tortilla across the Southwest for the next seven years, and who would have known that like sweet pork and tomatillo ranch and a big smile would get me this far? And Dr. Pepper is one of those secret ingredients Uh, of that sweet pork? I, I mean, I can't confirm nor deny uh, oh, okay, but I think good. if anybody oh knows my sweet God. stuff, it's you. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. And, and I'm drinking Dr. <laughs> Pepper. Why are you trying to ask me what's in that? You well, you mean, can probably just taste it and know. It's yeah. pretty good. It's, it's, it's Steve's good. a good taster. I have my moments. But, you know, okay, I, I want to know. Okay. You've done a lot of different restaurants. Every place that I've talked about it, or all the successes and all the, the, the accomplishments that you've done, what majorly just 
bombed. And like, what what <laughs> yeah. was like one what's um, one of your failures? Yeah. And what did you learn from it? I'll tell you this much. You know, it's interesting. We seem to be stacking successes today, and. I think the best way to articulate that is this is a 15-year overnight success. What We never see socially. And you use that a lot. I use that a lot because I have to remind myself and help others understand that this wasn't just like brand one, two, three, four, you know, five, six, or seven that are successful and viable in the marketplace. That's just what you see. That's what you experience. Like I've opened restaurants. I've closed restaurants. I've hired teams. We've fired teams. We've raised money. We've uh, made money. We've raised money. We've lost money. We've that – is a bit of the kind of the fast fail nature. And so when you ask me what is my biggest failure, uh, industry specific, um, growing too fast. Like believing that you have the world's best sandwich, you're gonna have the world's best business, you pour gas on it, you get people involved because the brand is hot and you have interest and all of a sudden you start growing and you get to this place of, of many units and you have what you believe is this workforce architecture and resources and ability to drive performance and viability across the large fold. And the next thing you realize is that you've just, you've outgrown, you've really truly outgrown, um, you know, maybe call it experience, abilities and resources. And so uh, growing too fast um, early in my career uh, really was our biggest failure. And I should say mine personally. And it was also our biggest learning. And it's accelerated our future because now we really nail it before we scale it. You know, we'll work on the intellectual property and, and brand and aligning all those assets and putting these pieces together sometimes a year to two years in advance of ever launching the market. And then we get obsessed over making sure that the craft and the hospitality and the full package of that brand experience is ready to hit wildfire. It's like, it's ready for whatever you want to call it. It's steroid superpower, pedal to the metal, whatever you want to call that, call it moon speed. That's been probably our biggest success has grown from the fact that we grew too fast, too early. And you know, if I look back in the early Costa Vida days, I spent over a year guided by my team and, and the operations, the COO and the, and the CEO of the company. And I was like, we were acquiring failing, like uh, failing franchisees. We were recapturing those locations, pulling them back into our operation, and, and then turning those, you know, those locations back towards our mission and vision and getting back on standard. And so when you spend over a year, almost two years, you know, recapturing failing franchisees, or you uh, take a great brand and you take it to scale, and, and you know, one day you have 20 units and eight months later you have 11. And now I think those are all specific and circumstantial, but that has been really, I think, the biggest one at scale, for sure. Kind of going on to that, like, what defines a great brand to you? People want it. If people want it and, and they love it and they advocate on your behalf, I believe you know the brand. Because brands are personal. Right? Brands are lifestyle. People, people resonate with brands, I believe, more than they actually resonate with that sandwich or that uh, specific shoe, right? People associate themselves with the Jordan brand, right? And because of that, they, they're creating that association with that shoe. It may not be the best fitting shoe. It might not be it, the best color combo, but because it's that specific Jordan or because it's that specific brand, people want to become advocates. Like people love to be advocates of brands that they believe fit their lifestyle or uh, that ultimately are a bit of their culture. And so to me, what do I think makes a great brand is when people advocate on your behalf, 
And I pay attention to that. In fact, I should say I'm obsessed with that. And I believe that's where our success comes from. I'm, I'm not a culinarian by trade. Remember, I'm on the other side. So I say to you, like, you can taste the recipe and tell. No, but I'm, I'm the eater. So, like, I'm yeah. not even a culinary guy yeah. either. I yeah. eat the stuff. That's, so that's, that's the same thing for me. And I, I think I give an interesting perspective because I'm absolutely obsessed with what guests want. That's why I love people at my table. That's why if you see me socially, you see me in my dining rooms, I'm constantly table side with you. And if I'm not table side with you, I'm championing you and you may be championing me and I'm sharing that on social and I'm sharing it on the platform. And here I am up here, I've bought your chocolates for years, but the fact that I get to sit down with you now and you've always been incredibly friendly to me when I walk in. You're a great host. You, you're like the, the, the maitre d', you get it, you understand it. But to be able to be table side with you and feel your passion and excitement for what you're doing and how we do it, because let's be honest, this business is crazy. Oh, like it's hard. just it like every single day you wake up and you know you're gonna get your ass kicked and for me what I realize is that the the <laughs> the what do you call it not the fight but the the ass kicking just there's a different reward now because we just get better we used to, I I spent years going home like literally I. I Early years, I had this townhome, and the steps up to my room were so steep. It was like almost like a split-entry townhome. And I remember literally physically and mentally crawling up those stairs at night with no end in mind. And the better and better you get, the more and more you learn the things that you continue to create, the deals that you continue to stack. Now, I still go home oftentimes with that same or similar mental and physical fatigue because I only know one way is to go all in on everything that we do. And now, I just know that when I do have that moment, when I do have that experience of that mental and physical exhaustion, we get way better. We get better every time. We don't just like wear ourselves out and get to burnout. Yeah. So, okay, so I need to tag, I need to like hang around you and see all these trades. It, it, like kind of a follow-up or a, a, a different question, which is more important in your, in your facilities? Is it the environment that you're creating for your customers? Is it the menu? Is it the employees? If it's the employees, what do you look for when you're hiring staff? What is there a key trait that they must have? So the answer to your question is today more than ever, it's all. It's every single one of those. There was a time, Stephen, when I believed that you could you could have a great taco, a great burrito, a great salad, a great chocolate, uh, a great pancake and you would create some interest. I think there was times that you could have a space that was very Instagrammable, that looked cool and it was hip and, and it, was, it was progressive and it, and it spoke to the culture within that community or what, that, or what you believe that that culture and that community uh, progresses to become, like wants to become. And now you can't just have a cool space that pictures well. You can't just have a place that people want to hang out. Uh, if you have a cool place but you don't nail it on the culinary side, then your food's known for novelty and you're only a picture place, right? You um, no longer because people are so much better. If you look at like competitive sports, right? There was a time – like look at the outliers in sports, right? You had Michael Jordan, right? And even LeBron James now or, or you had Tiger Woods. But you look at those sports now and there's like 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 or 50 – of those guys or gals that are all competitive, that all have a chance to win. Our business is the same way. We're just better than we've ever been before, which raises the stakes for the people doing it. And so there is a guy in your own neighborhood or there's a gal in your own neighborhood who is actually hitting you know, four of those five cylinders or you know, six of six instead of 
the time when you could just have great service and people wanted to be there, or you had a great product and people wanted to be there. Now people are expecting a universal experience and they expect you to be good and we expect to be world-class at all of those. No question. So I would want to go back to the people part if you're cool with that. Yeah. Because uh, there's, an, there's an old saying, right? Like hire the smile, train the skill. Have you heard that? Yeah. Our business is pretty simplistic, right? We're not building rockets. We're not coding. <laughs> we like, we build sandwiches or we make pancakes or we, or we toss uh, pad ties or, uh, you know, we pinch dumplings or we roll out steam buns and all that is a process. But the technical side of that is something that under the right operations and the right training and the right mentoring, you can teach that skill. So to me, I believe our recipe and people, um, by the way, it's what I focus on almost most, uh, being obsessed with your guests and being obsessed with your team, um, especially under these conditions, uh, is a like unruly advantage when people are knocking on your door to come work for you or you're duplicating your likeness and you're talking to someone who opened brands during the pandemic. I brought a 200 seat casual restaurant to the market 10 weeks ago. Like no one's doing that right now. If they are, they're kind of crazy like me or they're like, you know, they're like the the massive Darden brands of the world. They're like the Olive Gardens. Then they have, you know, more money than God. They're not like these, you know, progressive restaurateurs that are based in Salt Lake City. And when we opened, we needed a staff of 45 and we got there in three weeks. Under these conditions, it's crazy. And I know why. It's because we've created a reputation that people want to work for us. Like we create excitement, we create uh, stability, we create, uh, you know, uh, I think great comp plans and highly competitive comp plans. But most importantly, I think that they see that they're going to work for a group that actually gives a shit about the neighborhood and gives a shit about them. And that's a big deal in today's market because because of this labor climate and market, it's kind of flipped to the team member side, right? The associate side is saying, I expect this kind of money. I expect the flexible schedule. I expect these conveniences. I, I don't want to be able to, I don't have to drive to work. I want to commute to work. Is it walking distance? Is it mass transit? Is it, is it bike? And although we can't check all of those boxes, especially when you're not in the heart of the city or you're in the, you know, Draper suburbs or uh, whatever that might be, we've found that you have to really start to look at the market and you have to look at society and you have to build a recipe and a method that gets people to choose you. And then you gotta honor it. And, um, and that honoring is like staying relevant. It's like keeping your chocolates relevant, right? It's like keeping our pad thai relevant. Um, same thing, you, gotta, you have to keep your culture relevant and keep people vested in wanting to work with you and for you. Do you think Salt Lake has an area that it's not being filled yet in the food industry? Well, hell is, yes. Is, <laughs> Wait a couple years. Such as <laughs> have, have I'm on, I'm writing there. notes. So, so like not so, so what 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 are you? I mean, Salt Lake could improve it. I'll tell you, for three to four years, I've been thinking about pancakes and champagne, right? And when I first kind of brought that concept to idea, some people were like, "Dude, you're crazy." And now people are celebrating a Wednesday in Sandy, Utah, like a Saturday in Vegas with their girlfriends. Right, like I knew that what I love about brunch is it's so experiential, right? When you say like, hey, see, let's grab your gal, let's grab your family, let's go have breakfast, you're like great, let's go to a great diner, right? There's, and there's a lot of great diners close to this neighborhood and even in this neighborhood, reality is. And you're like, okay, cool. But if I say, hey, let's go to brunch, you're like, okay, <laughs> where are we going? <laughs> Like, what are we going to drink? It's the next level. Yeah, up, like, yeah. are we taking a ride chair? Like, <laughs> who, who are we inviting? What am I going to wear? Like, 
brunch is so experiential. And to me, I love being that experiential concept creator. And so when you ask me like what's missing, I think there's menutainment that is missing from Utah where you can go in and experience, like have a true experiential opportunity around beverage and around food and around entertainment that is done very well. Like you've seen the quote unquote, the, the, the Dave and Busters of the world and things like, I'm not talking about like glorified pub food or concessions food and video games. I'm talking experiential, you know, activation and activity from music to pool to like, think of the essence of kind of club and party and lounge, but in a more sophisticated environment, that's not pretentious, that's well operated. Like that's well managed. And so menutainment is really what Utah's missing and and we wanna help front run that. You know, we're a little ways out, but we're gonna help front run. That's the that's a bit of the future of what we're doing. Is it hard to be amazing and successful but not pretentious? Like how do you keep that for your staff? I think that a couple of things that we have to work on, um, right? We're bold. I'm bold. Um I, I know that when I walk in a place, I kick the door off the frames. I'm pretty loud. I I'm engaging, but I can tell you this much right now. And hopefully I can say this on the podcast or cut if you know, but my heart's bigger than my balls, but I, I most definitely have a big motor. Like I, I have initiative and, and I'm tenacious. I, I showed that to Utah. I showed that to our community in the middle of the pandemic when we just pivoted and, and really became that cornerstone and that place that of, of normalcy, which is what great restaurants and bars, cafes and others are during times of crisis. We showed the community that we could show up and do it safely and, and really be there during a time when, when others were running for the hills or, or you know, ultimately in a lot of fear. And I had this level of calmness and and knew that we could do it safely and I could maintain stability and keep teams going. And, and so I think that there's a way that you can exude your confidence in a way that is not pretentious or ultimately comes across as like off-putting. And I also think there's a bit of an art form because a lot I don't apologize for, but I also, I want a very like inclusive experience with the attributes and, and I think sort of values and experiences of something that's very exclusive. And I feel like creating that type of dining, creating that type of beverage, creating that type of culture, um, creating that type of design, I've always wanted to make it approachable. Like I didn't grow up in a family where like fine dining was a reality. <laughs> I didn't grow up in a place where like menutainment was even an option. Like I, Olive all, all Garden was fine dining I'll tell for you, my family. I'll for me, same. And I got there when like my grandfather took us to dinner. I ate silly sacks and whatever those, uh, the Happy Meal versions at Arctic Circle are, like the corn dog and the small fry, I ate those for like six years of my adolescence straight, <laughs> right? And so I have, a lot of, I have a lot of love and pride for fast food. Um, it literally, I was raised on it because that's what my family could afford. And so there's always been something that said to me, like, if it was up to society, I don't belong at the table. And I wanted to flip the script. And because it wasn't that long ago for me, I want to make room for everybody else. Everybody else who really wants to be a part of it, and it's what I love about our industry. It doesn't matter what family you came from, what school you went to, what your walk of life is, it just matters how you show up and participate today. And I really see it as the industry of opportunity because I've watched people's lives, I've watched the legacy, I've watched their whole family tree change, literally change economically and from a, uh, just from an overall sort of value and legacy, I've watched the restaurant business 
change people's lives. I mean, imagine coming into a business where you get hired on at seven or eight or nine or $10 an hour, and within a matter of five years, you're making over $100,000 a year. The difference in your legacy. At I, I'm not crazy. to that point yeah. yet. I'm just adding. Yeah. So. During my 15 years, so, yeah. I never got anywhere close uh, to that and in it's just, food. And that's what multi-unit can provide. Yeah. It's, it's, it just brings a different excitement but or a different opportunity, but it's what I love about what we do, really, is that there's so much opportunity in our business. So another question. Yeah, please. These are a little. Oh, by the way, I love all these because they're these are good ones. These are you should write questions more. These are Jeez. these are biased <laughs> Is this questions. This the first time he's he's I he's believe actually so, yeah. rock. Okay, you're I'm fucking important. Okay, <laughs> so I'm just like I mean <laughs> I, 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 like, I, I had to like I had to oh, do my research. I should be recording this right now. Why? Oh, don't why worry, we'll, we'll give you yeah, copies yeah. Okay, of this. Perfect. Okay. Um. Okay. So how important is a dessert only? Um, venue and and can it be sustainable follow up what advice would you have to i don't know say a chocolate ice cream shop owner um in today's market yeah i will tell you this much especially in utah there's not a there's not a sweeter state right the sweet the, the sweet tooth here is beyond fairy like it is everyone wants it sweet look at hell we made pork sweet we made pork taste like a Kit Kat and a tortilla. And so do I believe that dessert-focused concepts only can win? Yes. Here's where I haven't seen it done yet. Here's where I haven't seen it done yet. Where is, where is that progressive and elevated beverage experience that pairs with a great dessert for that evening side? And what does that shop look like during the daytime, that sort of after school hour, you're picking up your kids from school, you got the soccer moms, you got that component, and there's this way that you convert that environment. So possibly a, a fusion hatch family chocolates with drinks. Like a mixology. Yeah. yeah. And you I'm telling you right there, it'd be gangbusters. In fact, I'll write, I'll, I'll, I'll write a check for that part of that right now. If oh, you were let's, to do yeah, that. let's go for it. Yeah, deals I mean, are being made, folks. Do you know, you know some of my yeah. some of the best deals wow. we've ever been a part of, like Ginger Street. That started. So I hosted Teen Chef Pro right on Fox, and I, part of my role as the host was to interview like the guest judge. And that day it was Tyler Stokes, and I said to him like, "What's next?" And he said, "A project with you." And seven months later, we opened Ginger Street. It was like this is this could be the start of something here. Um, but yes, I believe that that. Uh, the right kind of dessert and the right kind of dessert experience in Utah, as sweet as this state is, is absolutely underserved. And one thing I like about that, like yeah. I, I mean, I'm totally biased, but yeah. so when as I, you should be, when, that's okay to be biased. But yeah. I've listened to like you know what your background is, and I think that you nailed it when you said that your quote was. Let's see what it, he it was. does have notes. Um, I'll you said that we need to humanize. <laughs> An experience, yeah. and that was your words. You, yep. you said, "Let's humanize an experience," and I think I kind of agreed. Maybe not with the same verbiage, but when we tried to set up a chocolate shop in the middle of a neighborhood, we wanted a place where people could come and forget all the shit that was going on, whatever was happening, if the economy was going down or up or whatever. But it was a place that they could just talk and they could laugh. And you talked about through in, through COVID. Yeah. Like how important that was for you guys to fill that role and to stay open be during that. Mm -hmm. um, is that still lacking? Do we still need to be on the 
we have to continue to humanize that experience, right? That's why you hear me say often experiential dining, experiential dining, because I think that these platforms, the kiosk ordering, that, you know, all the online platforms, all these things that do to accelerate, I think, productivity and, and conveniences are wonderful, right? So just take back that time that you get back from investing in these programs or these platforms and just greater humanize the experience from doing it. I believe today, more than I've experienced in my entire career, that people want to connect at the table. And I might be the wild one that thinks that, but I'm also the one sitting here who has, you know, uh, 10 items on one menu that's counter service. I have a 160 seat restaurant in the heart of Salt Lake City, a 200 seat restaurant in, in Sandy. You know, the reality is I have such a variety of different dining experiences and I see people right now gathering for a great bottle or even a cheap bottle of champagne, crushing pancakes, like cheersing to, you know, beignets and eggs Benedict and having a crazy good time on a Tuesday. I see them yeah. drinking the same drink, maybe with a pot de creme or a house-made artisan ice cream sundae with an adult flair and champagne ice cream or different flavors. See, this so is, now this you're, is so you're under I'm the seeing, heater yeah, now. You know, the pancakes are the, yeah. you know, they're an appetizer. We could yeah. substitute, sub it with a cookie. Yeah. I mean, we could come up with different things. I'm telling you that, that you're onto something special because we all know food's emotional, right? Food's romantic. Yeah. Chocolate's romantic, right? It, true? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel like when I bite into something delicious, to me, there's something on my palate that's very romantic. It's hot. It's, I, I wanna bite into it, right? And I feel like creating an environment that can accelerate, can, can help further that essence, like bring it to life, like you're saying, can I, can I create this in the neighborhood? I want people to come in and, and be happy and enjoy. But you also can have people come in and be sad and enjoy. You know, people come in and be romantic and enjoy. You know, people come in and be actually be pissed off and, and, and enjoy. And I know that as creators, as crafters, as restaurateurs, conceptors, designers, whatever it might be, whatever your craft might be, I believe that we have an ability to take an environment – and, and, and really, really craft that environment to be that accelerant to that experience. And I don't think anyone's doing that in dessert. Not well, not super well, not yet. 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 No, nobody's doing it yet. Yeah. I haven't been in Sunday's best yet, but the, <laughs> just the pictures and scene. It's a party in there. It's like, it's, you wouldn't recognize outside from inside that it's a totally different place. It, it just looks amazing. Thank you. When we were putting the concept together, I wanted to feel like you like were in Miami, but all of a sudden you got transplanted to Miami when you walked into a space in the suburbs of Salt Lake City and or Palm Springs. And so I wanted you to walk in and feel like you were in a really cool boutique hotel or you were in this resort or you were like in your favorite beach city or you know, you're in Palm Springs. And I feel like my team really nailed that. Because when people walk in, the first thing they do is go, oh my God, or like, this place is beautiful, or look how cute it is, or I want to go take pictures, look how cool it is. And, and what's interesting, and, and I'll just say this candidly, what I love most about the spaces that we create, and most specifically with Sunday's Best, is that I feel like everyone walks in and feels beautiful. And that's important to me. Because when we feel our best, we do our best. And the neighborhood needs more of that shit. 
The neighborhood needs more people doing good for each other, especially in our beloved communities, right? When we're up here and the things that we're doing and how we're engaging, you know, whether that be through different dining clubs and rotations and opportunities and championing others, like as a, as a restaurateur in the neighborhood, I am highly competitive. But I don't know of another restaurateur in Utah that promotes other restaurants that they don't own more than me. I promote other people's restaurants all the time when I believe in you and I see you and I see you take like I see you participating in the community. That's a big deal. And so I love space that helps, again, not only encourage the experience, but encourages you to be better, to feel better, to look better, to engage differently. And we're all unique in our own way. We all have our own style, our own shape, our own, you know, our own personalities. And that's what makes us, the human race, so amazing and so complex. It's like the beauty in our disaster. Uh, but it's so damn fun to see. And so I, I love that you brought that up because that's exactly why we designed the space the way we did. Well, let, let's break down the personalities of yeah. each one of your <laughs> concepts. And yeah. I know we're good. We're, we're good. We've, we're, we got yeah. time. I'll put a timer on. Three twenty. Timer on. Yeah, we're at yeah. three twenty. So yeah, we're golden. We got we got time here. So the first one, Dirty Bird. That's that's one of your newer ones. Started in Provo, and you just opened Ogden. Yeah. And it's spicy chicken, Nashville style. It's you, hot probably, chicken. Hot chicken. Hot chicken. Yeah. Uh, Dirty Birds. The original vision for Dirty Bird took place about five years ago, four to five years ago, 2017-ish. However, the thought of like owning like a chicken sandwich, fried chicken restaurant was clear back in like 2012, 2013 for me. So it was on my heart. It was on my mind. We were traveling the country eating chicken sandwiches. We've eaten it probably, I would say most, if not all, I want to say all, but most Relevant hot chicken sandwiches in the country from L.A. to New York City, I've eaten. I've literally been on tours from L.A. to New York. Well, specifically from L.A. to Chicago one specific time. Literally, I just traveled to city after city just to eat chicken sandwiches. I know it sounds crazy, but it was it like the, great. Early, it was the <laughs> early way to get to yeah. get this brand off the ground and to see that we launched our first location in a food hall on the south side of BYU campus in Provo, Utah. 263 square feet, no beer associated with the menu, although it was called Dirty Bird Chicken and Beer. That's the original <laughs> name, Dirty Bird Chicken and Beer. There's no beer associated with it. To see it in its 20th month, you know, find itself in a merger acquisition deal of over $20 million, uh, that's like, it doesn't even seem real. But it is real because of what we put into it. And really where the value came from is what we talked about before, like the years of failure, the years of, of creating brands, the years of winning brands that are viable in the marketplace created a greater recipe and a greater method of that recipe to bring something like Dirty Bird to life. And um, it's a brand that we're proud of. And it's a brand that we built with the intent to sell. We thought it would take three to five years. It took 20 months. And it spent 18 of its or 19 and a half of its 20 months in the pandemic. We opened it six months or six weeks pre-pandemic. And then 20 months later, got to that, got to that, uh, that scenario. And to say, was that hard? I don't even know that there's a term or I can't think of an adjective to actually define it. Other than the fact that just every day we ran a war room and every single day we got our ass kicked for months yeah. and we just kept learning. We just stayed leaned into it. And, uh, and the rest is history. Wow and how is what came to my mind. Wow and how, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, and also, okay, during the, the pandemic, how have restaurants changed? Like, I mean, you, you talked about Ooh. this, and you talked about how 
maybe there was no better person than yourself who was ready for the change yeah. that was coming. What what change have, is do you see yeah. that's permanent? I think personally, right? And for whatever reason, I, I mean, I I knew I'd enjoy you guys. No idea. I'd like sit down here and act like we smoked cigars and drank scotch and hung out for six years. Like I feel like I'm really good friends with you, so I can just be as open and as candid as can be. I had this self-narrative telling me that I was built for battle, like built for war. I'm not a warrior and I'm not taking away from others that go out there on those in those trenches and and fight on those lines. In fact, I'm a huge supporter and 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 contributor to those that that very much do serve and, and protect our freedoms. I just had this self-convincing narrative that I was built for battle. The pandemic proved I was. It something ha something switched and I showed up every single day every single day in a different way. And then when I realized that because I had the sense of calmness, I had a responsibility to show up for my neighborhood. And that's why you saw me get on TV, you saw me talk about uh, encouraging others, directing resources, holding small business roundtables, helping other people succeed during that time. I think it's a big part of what helped our relevance um, was really uh, getting out there and helping other people win. And so when you say, hey, like what's changed? Well, we've forever changed. I think that what we realized is that we were able to close the gap on convenience. We were able to take something like your craft and close the gap and have it delivered to someone else's porch and be an extension of their dining room. Like, like we just popped up every time they got chocolates or every time they got a hot honey pepperoni from Oakwood Fire Kitchen, their living room or their dining room became an extension of ours. And because we got so good at that, it changed society. Society now realizes that they can get that quality. Like when could you ever go to Provisions, right? Utah's best restaurant in my opinion, best fine dining with no linen on the table. No one ever thought about that place for takeout or delivery, ever, right? That's where you, took, that's where you should be going on your 20th year anniversary. But I mean, sitting here with us today is probably better. But now you can have, now you can have that <laughs> well, delivered. You can have that there. delivered to your house. And so I think that what we learned in the pandemic is that we're capable of way more than we ever thought we were as owners. Um, I think we also realized that we can do far more with far less, right? We didn't have a large treasury going into it. We stacked and built a treasury following those pandemic times. We went into it like Apollo 13. <laughs> like we had a little bit of money in the bank and a ton of horsepower. And maybe that's like we were, you know, big hearted and small brained and maybe that's how we got out of it so well. Um, and so, yeah, I think that the conveniences and maximizing those conveniences have forever changed. And I think how the consumer engages with your business has forever changed. And I feel like those that are left standing, the small business owners like you and you and I that are here, we're supposed to be. Because if you didn't show up every day, you're not here, you're gone. You're one of the 550 in Utah, the restaurants or bars that closed, that forever closed, that never reopened. We lost about 11% of our restaurants and bars total in the state of Utah, right? We had five, a little, I guess we had a little over 5,000. We have like 4,700 registered, something like that now. Don't hold me to it, but it's damn close. Yeah, but we lost over 500 during that time that'll never come back. And for whatever the reasons, varieties of reasons, but those that are here standing today, have learned that that society has changed, that the experiences are far more universal than ever, and you have to actually give a shit and take care of people, meaning take care of your team, take care of your business, and take care of your community because all stakeholders in the community matter today, for sure. Yeah, I was going to comment on that because the rates to pay people at restaurants, you know, went up. Like almost doubled. But, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, we got to take care of these people. 
to keep them if we were going to pay them that much and not, you know, take care of them outside of, you know, the job, you know, it's it's going to implode again. And we're just throwing good money at bad people. So you've got to. I, I think the reality some. is when I look at labor, I look at it as an investment, right? I look at it as an investment in our business and our experiences inside of our community. And as much as I want that to feel good and be the soft science, the reality is the economics have to make sense, right? We have to make payroll. <laughs> like We have to be viable. Like We're not in business on scholarship. And so I think that what business owners have to realize and society has to realize, if we're going to continue to move those metrics, if we're going to continue to, to raise the, the minimum wages, we're going to continue to, to move and invest greater and greater, then we're going to see that like as, as inflation and the market moves, so does the price of that chocolate. So does the price of that burger. So does the price of that pancake. So does the price of, you know, whatever those services might be. And I think the reality is that we as business owners, a collective need to move that because the restaurant industry is known for never raising prices. Like we're so slow to it. We feel like if we really raise that price, we're going to lose our, our guests and lose our consumers. And the reality is it's just going to level up the playing field. What it means is the people that were shopping you for price alone and not shopping you for quality, you don't want them being your advocates anyways. What you want are the individuals that actually believe in what you're doing, believe in your craft and know the investment that you're making in your community. And we all need a tiny percentage of the available market share to be wildly successful. And so not to go too economic, but I'm like, as business owners, like let go of the romantics of price and realize that the guest, the consumer, your community is willing to pay, especially when they see you as a business owner investing in the very people that live in that neighborhood. And so I'm not trying to say go out and start charging $25 for your pizza, but if you charge $7 forever and you're paying people 10 bucks an hour and now you pay everybody 15 bucks an hour, it's okay to charge 10. It's okay. Yeah. And there's enough people out there that are willing to do it because they see who you are. Now, if you're just the next, like, you know, whatever it is, jack in the box, well, you just better pay 15 bucks and keep your, you know, your burger at three bucks, right? QSR guys are different. We're we're in our own realm. Yeah. (laughs) Next one, Ginger Street. You mentioned that was kind of a table talk conversation. Yeah. Development thing. It's Asian fusion. Tell us about it. It's romantic. Uh. The true definition of like hawker style street food is you're hawking that food. I love the depth of it. You know, you get into Southeast Asia, you travel those streets, you you eat the food and you'll realize that she has been raising her family and building her legacy on dumplings alone. And it just so happens that he has the like communities, he has Asia's best like Thai basil chicken stir fry. And I knew that there was an opportunity I knew that there was an opportunity within our community to take a great curry and a great pad thai and a great uh, dumpling and a steamed bun and a chop suey and even an orange chicken and a spicy chicken sandwich and put it under one roof. Because think about it. When you think in your mind, like, where am I going to go to get a great curry? You know a place. And you go, like, if I'm going to go get a great dim sum, I know where I'm going to go. But it's not often that you go to one place and you get your favorite pad thai or a pad thai that levels up or you get a, uh, you know, a... um, what do you call it? Uh, a curry that levels up. I knew there was this opportunity to bring like a true Southeast Asian uh, focused, you know, hawker style restaurant to the community. And there's no one better than the culinary wizard, Chef Tyler Stokes, to do it in our community than him. He's so Asian forward in flavor profiles and his love and art for cooking goes all the way back to Dashi and Sun Valley. And he also like mentored, you know, his chef mentor that was his executive chef for the first several years of his career was the executive chef of South or of uh, Four Seasons Asia for many, many years. So he just 
It's what he loves to do and do it well. And we knew that the city needed this kind of eccentric, eclectic space that's on Broadway and State Street that's connective and it's exciting. It's a little bit not grungy. It's just it's urban centric. 50 seats on the patio, the hustle and bustle of State Street and and, uh, and Broadway and the kind of flavor. You know, I wanted a space that was as spicy and as exciting as the curry. And I feel like we very much nailed that uh, with Ginger Street. And I feel like we're still just like, I feel like we're just getting into stride at Ginger Street. Like that one's taken a while. Like bridging the community to a Pad Thai is entirely different than I think bridging the community to a great cookie, you know, or I don't know why I'm stuck on ricotta pancakes today, but you know, on pancakes or champagne or hot chicken. <laughs> that one was a huge learning for us. I was surprised how long it would take to bridge the community to that type of food all under one place. And we've had to encourage people like early. I felt, I felt like we were soliciting people to come in and go like, we promise you it's that good. Like we promise you it's this cool. We promise you we're not pretentious. And you know, you see a, a hot pink neon sign and a disco ball and a DJ booth and you work at Ray Quinney Nebaker downtown. It's okay to walk in and get a pad thai for lunch. <laughs> it's not scary. It won't bite you that hard. My friend works downtown, and we've started getting lunches. I think I've just decided where we're going to go next. Awesome. Um, next one is um, Oakwood Fire Kitchen. Yes. I don't know a lot about this one, so I'm, I'm very interested in this one. Oak is special. Like, I'm, you're going to hear me tell you how, how much I love these brands and how much I love these experiences because they, they, were, all, they were all birthed with a, with a specific intent to serve that community in a very experiential or different way. And what Oak Woodfire Kitchen is to the city of Draper and, and Sandy, the community of Salt Lake City, and more importantly, like the McHenry Group, is that we wanted to like reintroduce, like reinterpret what it means to be a true neighborhood bistro. You walk in and the host, you know, is, is she lives in your neighborhood, you know, the parents, the you know, a kid that's busting tables, plays on the lacrosse team. You know, like you want to walk in, you know the chef, you know what's on the menu, you know where it's coming from. He's making pasta, he's talking to you. Michael's hugging you at the at the front door and table side. We, I wanted to truly reintroduce what it means or meant to be a true neighborhood restaurant. Because leading up to that, I was on the C-suite of emerging brands for over eight years before I launched the McHenry Group. And my reward center is actually this, like connecting with you at the table. And when I was the, you know, the COO and the CMO and, and the president and ultimately CEO, I got further and further removed from this. I got further and further removed from the dining room. And so I was just kind of my heart and my mind, I was fed up. I loved the experience. I had a self-convincing narrative that I wanted to be the CEO of a large emerging brand. And the reality is my reward center actually is I just want to connect and feel with people in my dining rooms and in my communities because I love them. I truly love them. And uh, Oak, like, reignited that for me. Oak is the reason that TMG is what TMG is today because it reintroduced us and specifically me to how sacred of a duty like connecting your community through food really is. And um, Oak will always be that special to me. I don't plan on building many. I don't plan on taking that one to scale. I plan on keeping it just the way it is, like a neighborhood favorite. Um, I'm going to say it's easy because no business is easy, but it's easy for us. Like our pizzas are great. The menu's approachable. The team is is unique and young and engaging, and they're from the neighborhood. And we're just not going to change a damn thing about it because it literally just ignited the – it kind of reignited who we are. And where it is is a nice, cozy little corner 
in the neighborhood. I there was a a croissant place there years ago when I was in yeah yeah with, lived down that way. And it was, I always just thought that little corner of shops was cozy. It's kind of interesting. You know, you have to take like three right turns or something to get into it. It's like it's like class D real estate, really, in an A demographic. So it helped our economics, too, when you're like launching a small business. Like I left all the corporate stability, salaries, resources, you know, <laughs> uh, benefits, all those things. Like I went from many units and hundreds of team members and millions of dollars in revenue to a 67-seat restaurant in Draper, Utah. Like I, I left that, resigned from that and went to that to do what we've been talking about this whole time. And I love that neighborhood. I just, and I think that it's, it's true. You know, Gormandy's is right there now, a little bit down from us on the hard corner. And, and um, you know, there's been some more recent activation there, but we, we like the neighborhood bistros. Like, and you know, it's just what you catch here in the apps. You know, it's just Draper's different. You know, it's a bit different. What's a piece of advice that you would give somebody? What's... What's maybe the, or the greatest advice you've been given? Start. And it sounds so simple and yet it's so complex. Just start. You know, I have like the biggest maxim that I live by and you've probably already heard this and read it. Um, 70, 70% and then a hundred percent like, yeah. Yeah. 70% right. 110% sure. Like, because if you, if you start at 70, you start at 50, you start at 90, we'll almost never start at a hundred. In fact, we just procrastinate and we, we become, in fact, as a designer, you'd understand that. Like you got to get the pencil to the paper, right? If you just sit there yeah. and concept the whole time, it's all theoretical. Like you just, you have these, these things going, but if you get the pencil to the paper, something starts to come to life. If you put it in market, you will learn and you will fail fast and failing fast really is a superpower. I have a few superpowers. I feel like there's a few of them out there. Like my ADHD, people like look at it, they want to be medicated, they want to work on it. I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, for me it's a superpower. I never run out of gas. I exhaust people around me, my mind goes a thousand directions, but to me it's a superpower. And I feel like starting, when you can start and just be bold and you're not afraid to fail, you will win over and over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. And um, so just get started. Like that's, I know it sounds so simple, but I'm telling you, if I could just give one piece of advice to every young entrepreneur, or everybody who wants to start their own business, go, just go. Because if we listen to all these podcasts and all these forums and take all the education and read all these books, when you, when you get so much influence, you are steered. Entrepreneurs are creative. Like you're here to bring something to the market that's never been done before, or you believe it hasn't been done before. And you can't get a lot of advice from other people to build something that's never been built before. But I can tell you this much, when you launch your business and you start going, a lot of people that are successful in business can help you with their growth and their acumen, their capital, their, their craft, their, their resources, their training, their, acad uh, their academia, all of those things can contribute, but not until after you start. Well, we got our timer, so we've got we like got a little more time. We got a little more, little more time. Yeah, I, I like yeah. how you said. I mean, I don't. We got my, ten minutes. Ten my minutes. theory is that if you're ever to hundred percent and you've reached that maximum, or that that you then sell or get out, because like in my mind, you should never get that. Like you should actually be always striving for a hundred percent. And and if you get to that hundred percent, it should be another hundred percent, or just something is always evolving. Like that's kind of my theory is when you get so stagnant that you reach the pinnacle and maybe call it quits or, or do something different like 
it's interesting when you say that because I think of the times in which we feel like we've arrived or I don't know how this is for you guys and maybe I heard a little bit of this from you but when I get to a point where I feel like I've arrived like I have it figured out I'm like self-destructive I become complacent to things like I'm not progressing I'm regressing right it's like you're either growing or you're or you're not like there's no in between right there's no neutral right? You're regressing or you're progressing. There's no in between. And, and I think when we get to this mindset, like we just nail it, right? That's what's exciting for me because I'm a concept creator. I never get bored, right? Like there's always something to do. My ops teams are going crazy. Like my creative teams, our brand teams, our culinary teams, like we always have something moving and shaking. But I think that what helps us continue to, uh, progress what what helps us continue to grow is the fact that like we just remind ourselves that it's never enough right like it's never enough and that kind of maxim for us that we stole from from uh from phil knight at nike is just no finish line like we stole that from nike and we champion that you know internally that no finish line doesn't mean that we don't celebrate our wins that we don't like go together that doesn't mean that we're not winning or exiting brands or doing the things that we're doing um and, and we celebrate, no question. But um, the moment that you feel like you've arrived, you need to find a new challenge. You need to find a new opportunity, no question. Yeah. Dylan, sorry. I know you have bonus questions. Yeah, bonus questions. Oh, I wanted to. <clears throat> Should I shut up? No. Or am no. I supposed to? Okay. You I feel can, like I've been talking this whole time. You can shut up in 10 That's minutes. That's what we do. All right, perfect. <laughs> All right. I want to touch on uh, healthy and full initiative Yeah. real quick before we do our bonus questions. Yeah. What? what that was pandemic related. It's development, it was, right? It was solely pandemic related. Um, and what's really beautiful about the healthy and full initiative is now the framework is there. And I hope that we don't hit a worldly crisis, but the reality of it is something's going to happen. An earthquake, a, you know, some, a, a disaster, you know, unfortunately, maybe another pandemic. And the framework works. And so now we have it. So now it's like we can grab it and turn it on whenever we find ourselves in this, whenever we find our great state, in that type of state of emergency, we'll be able to grab the healthy and full initiative and immediately implement. We learned a lot rapidly, like just start. Like I was launching this initiative. Like I'm literally, I'm the sole delivery driver. I'm the spokesperson. I'm like, we're literally out there. And it was, it was a partner of mine, um, Mark Selman, who, um, who called me one night and said, Em, there's something we can do. It, you know, the healthcare system is chaotic right now. They didn't understand what was coming, right? The pop-up emergency tents, the, the quarantines, everything that was happening. And, and early, because we hadn't experienced it before, at least like kind of globally or as a nation, the solve to those problems was more labor. It wasn't like strategic. They got more and more strategic over time. But I delivered to LDS Hospital twice a day for like eight weeks, if not more. Sometimes I was there three times. Had my daughter there. I, I, like literally, I was just going back and forth from the restaurant. Um, and, and we saw the chaos and we saw the quarantine and we saw people, um, especially our frontline heroes in a scenario where like they're working literally sometimes 24 hour shifts or these like 10, 12, 15 hour swing shifts. And what we knew in our mind is we didn't want you to get off your shift or be on that swing shift quarantine from your family stuck at a hospital. And all of a sudden when you get a chance to sit down and have a break, you're going to eat a string cheese and an apple slice. We just didn't feel good about that. So we knew I there was a way. I need to talk with you about those yeah. ideas because um, last night I had somebody from the hospital who I'm um, telling me. She's sick of signing death certificates. Um, and, you know, that's what she's been doing the last few months. Oh. And um, I, I think that the best way to deal with the, that kind of stress is, is even treats. Yeah. I need to talk with you to figure out how I can go in it now 
even though you guys were I'm gonna there. do that for you and I'm gonna do that for you so I, let's figure out how to do it because I think that when what you did was so important at that time yeah um, and I think that now everybody kind of forgets that it's still kind of go- it, it's still going and, well, the, and we just gotten comfortable with it yeah, yeah. and maybe yeah. there's a renewal of that we can go into these places and give them the you know thanks thanks for just being you hundred percent and so as we got this going like that I knew that there was this opportunity. Dining rooms are closing. Businesses are closing. Essential, non-essential. Like, you know, you lived it. Like, everyone's going dark. There's fear. There's there's real opportunities. There's real crisis. There's a, a pandemic that is real. It's happening. And I knew I had 140 team members that, and their livelihoods. Like, that's directly 140 people counting on me. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot compared to the guy that has 1,000 or 10,000. But to me, 140 was enough to keep me up at night. And that didn't include their families and their partners. Right, so indirectly, we're talking hundreds of people in my small business, and I knew there was a way. I knew there was a way to keep my team stimulated, and so when we launched the Healthy and Full Initiative through great part- thought partnership with my good friend and partner uh, Mark Selman, I knew there was a way that we could provide a chef-made meal through local restaurants and create a win-win-win scenario. So here's the real quick recipe. I worked to identify an individual or a business in the community that could afford it, that would sponsor lunch or dinner for our healthcare providers and frontline heroes. And I went and built the relationships with IHC and University of Utah and Mountain Star. And I literally just got on the phone and said, hey, by the way, I'm the one caterer in town who's actually available. And it just so happens that you don't have to pay for it because I got Mr. Mark Jensen and Heather Jensen from Cottonwood to sponsor today's lunch. Or I got, you know, Brian Wrigley from Lotus on South Temple to sponsor, you know, an entire week. Or I got, you know, I'm talking about guys in your neighborhood, by the way. Or, you know, I got, uh, um, you know, a variety of different, uh, Dustin Holt, you know, lives up here that does DB Urban. A lot of these guys and, and companies that could afford it. So I identified a sponsor who didn't pay like a discount, who actually paid full menu price and would sponsor at least 25 mils. Ultimately, it went to 100 and then got to 200, and then it got to a point where people were sponsoring the entire week. And what I would do is I would, I would promote and, and basically kind of extort them to the market. I'd promote them and say, Brian Wrigley stepped up huge for this community today. He's serving dinner for IHC, uh, you know, IMC and Murray for the entire week. Um, we've got Ginger Street, Provisions, uh, Nomad Eatery, and Honest Eatery. And that's the part that I, I want you guys to hear. It wasn't just TMG. We use TMG as the guinea pig because we controlled it. But the moment it started to accelerate, I started sharing that with local restaurants. And that was something that hadn't happened in Utah before. Restaurateurs filling your dining rooms during times of crisis just wasn't happening, right? We, we're in a selfish business. As, as small business owners, we're selfish and hold things close to the chest. I wanted to help realize that we could cast our net. And so identifying an individual or a business that could sponsor those meals, identifying a restaurant, and the win-win-win is this. Not only did we, did we identify someone that we could celebrate in the community that could do it, but we also protected the, the livelihoods and stability of the restaurant team members because they had to prepare the food and deliver the food. And then last but not least, when Julie got to sit down after a 17-hour shift at the University of Utah at 3 o'clock in the morning, she wasn't eating an apple sliced and a string cheese. I'm not taking away from those kid snacks. I mean, my daughter has those from time to time. She got to sit down and have a mushroom roll and a Thai basil chicken stir fry and a delicious G-bar as a dessert at the end of her shift or mid-shift. And we did that for weeks. And it went from like 
you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 mils to thousands of mils in a short period of time. And then we got to a point where we would show up to the hospital with mills and they didn't have anywhere to put them. And that was the moment that I knew I just had to turn the program off because I wasn't there to like sort of start these funds. I was there to like have a true viable and sustaining impact in the community by keeping people fed and keeping people literally fed. Meaning I kept people, I kept food on the table of our restaurant team members. I kept our restaurants open. We fed our frontline heroes and we leaned on our community because there's many in our community that can do it. And so the Healthy and Full Initiative uh, will be around forever and it's literally tattooed on my heart. Like it, it, it really was. We will take the a gas. picture to make sure that it's actually <laughs> yeah. on his heart. Okay, so <laughs> they're gonna call me out on this. I'm gonna have to unbutton my shirt. They have to. They're gonna have to do some surgery here. Um, luckily, we're close to to uh, the hospital here. Otherwise, we'd be in trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. I think I know you're in a yeah. rush. I'm not. No, I'm not. Go Who's ahead. Who's your favorite Muppet? Ooh, that's Dylan's <laughs> favorite question. Yeah, that's my favorite that's, question. That's his question. I think Kermit. I do. I just, I, I collected lunch boxes when I was a kid, you know, the metal lots lunch boxes. And I just, there was always something about that voice to me. That's like, I never had a blankie or like a, a stuffed animal, but that voice, Kermit's voice is very comforting to me. I don't know why, just maybe it's a childhood thing. And so I just, it always made me feel better. That's my favorite puppet. Nice. And in the movie of your life, who would you like to play you? <laughs> Damn, that's good. Ooh, McConaughey. <laughs> Red lights. I mean, green lights. Green lights. I, McConaughey is just so damn cool and infectious and transparent. You know, like have you have you read Green Lights? I, I've I've or listened go, to it. Doing it right now. I, I it's on my list, and Do I've it. been listening to yeah. part. I yeah. you know, I've been listening to him for a long time. His yeah. graduation speech yeah. was amazing. He what I love about it is this guy's talking about his lifestyle, like playing the drums, high as can be, cops show up, throw him with the like just crazy stuff. He knows his kids are gonna listen to this, but it's reality is he's like, I love my experience. I love my story. I'm I'm proud of my story. I I my family was completely dysfunctional and I love it. Like this is what he's sharing. And it, it McConaughey and his transparency right? And his candid nature has really inspired me to be better in a lot of ways by just owning my own story, like owning my story, like yeah. sitting at the table and going like, yeah, you know what? I'm not supposed to be here. That's exactly why I am here. And I want to share with other people that it's possible. Cause I know if I did it, I know other people can do it. And I, I love, plus I just love his energy. He's handsome. He's engaging. He's truthful. He's creative. He's a genius. So if someone's going to play my part, it better be McConaughey or they better not write the freaking movie. He's not afraid to take off his shirt. Yeah. <laughs> we have a, we have a topless picture of, of, of McConaughey at Sunday's best in the hallway. It's been, it's actually been stolen. Some gals, the boozy Wait, okay, girls. So everybody keeps stealing your picture. So yeah. your post Malone picture, it's been stolen been twice. Stolen. Yeah. And then Matthew McConaughey, Matthew picture? McConaughey got stolen and then they took him like, they videoed it, took him to Park City, took him to the bar, partied with them, slept with him, did all these things with the picture and then brought it back and hung it on the wall. It's just been kind of fun. It's, it's like, I want to say like pop culture. It's just been that kind of way of like getting people to engage with your brand, you know, and let's get your picture on the wall exciting. and see what they do see with what, it. Let's put you up there and see if we can we get you kidnapped. We need to get a 
like a life size Steve and yeah. just have him carry me around. <laughs> totally, totally. I am I am coming to nearing my time, gents. Hey, but go. but let me let me answer the whatever you have you, left. How can people find you? Instagram. Michael McHenry. M I C H A E L M C H E N R Y. That's me. I'm the one engaging. I'm promoting that. Like I will engage with you there. It's how I met you guys. Like formally for the podcast. I, I just threw it out there. I saw you on uh, Dan Young's, who I yeah. used to work with, sure. work with, and he's been on here. Yeah. I saw you on there. I saw you on I Am Salt Lake. I'm like, yeah. and then I started researching. I'm like, we got to have this guy. Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful. So find me on Instagram, and you can most definitely find me in my restaurants on the dining rooms. Like I, I gravitate towards Brunch Me Hard on the weekends because it's Saturday, Sundays, and it's brunch, and I have the string orchestra, and things are poppy and awesome. But catch me on the floor at the dining room or catch me on Instagram. Um. I love to engage. I can engage with everyone, and I can tell you I, I don't answer every DM or get back to everyone, but I think I get back to a lot. And so if you've messaged me before, just keep messaging me, and, and if we want to connect, hopefully it'll, it'll happen over time. But damn, it was fun to sit out here with you guys, and the weather is beautiful. That's and awesome. I mean, we have been buying your chocolates as a family. It's literally legacy for us. And as I mentioned to you, literally like a year ago within like this week or next week, my daughter, you know, we were here a year ago and it was such a great daddy-daughter date and uh, we ended up at the zoo and doing some other things here and it was great. So I plan on bringing her around. Next week's her birthday and so I'll, nice. um, I'll bring her in El Grace this uh, following tour. week. It'd be so, so cool. Well, you guys are such a pleasure. You're, you're just and, and dope as shit. <laughs> and knowing that you worked with my brother years ago and have a relationship yeah. with him, that, that, that brings something to it too. That Yeah, I mean the creative, like I didn't realize that I would be as I would gravitate as much towards creatives as I ha as I have, but as a as a concept creator, you know, for the longest time I thought that I was just supposed to be an operations guy, just like drive performance, stack cash, kick the door off the frames, and move on. And then I realized over time, as I matured in business and grew in business, I realized more and more how much I have a passion and reward center for creating experiences through hospitality and craft. And so, creatives are who I spend the majority of my time with, whether those are designers or or architects, or culinarians, or uh, whatever it might be. It's like it's what I love to do. So please tell your brother hello for me. I will do. I'd love to get you in the dining room, get him in the dining room, get you. Let's all break let's bread together. Eat. Like let's yeah. go eat. But you have to bring some chocolate. I'll do it. Yeah, I'll yeah. You got to work on. Let's let's work out this like sweet cocktail. No, we're gonna. Do yeah, it. Let's, so let's let's do this. And I'll do the design. Yes, you I'll will. There we go. I'm right, you I'm will. Good with that. <laughs> all right. All right, well, All right. thanks, peeps. Thanks, thanks, peeps. Thanks, Mom, for listening. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> many, 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 many cheers. Woo -woo. All right, cool. The podcast is done, man. <laughs>